This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. From Cuba to Paraguay, we'll discuss politics, economics, and controversy this week. But first, Lydia Bayoud has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Mexican President-elect Enrique Peña Nieto is asking rival political parties to support him for the good of the country. This is the time to agree, not to impose. This is the time to build, not to obstruct. Peña Nieto's party, the PRI, failed to win a majority in Congress. Analysts say this may complicate his ability to push his social and economic reforms and may force him to make more negotiations with opposing parties. The new Congress will meet in September before Peña Nieto takes office December 1st. Peña Nieto's request for unity comes amid ongoing protests by tens of thousands of people across Mexico and a rejection of the election results by Peña Nieto's primary opponent, Andrés Manuel López Obrador. Many have cried foul over allegations of Peña Nieto's campaign distributing thousands of prepaid gift cards across the country. López Obrador has vowed to take the matter to court. Seven police officers and four men linked to the Sinaloa cartel died in a shootout in Choix, Mexico this week. The gun battle occurred three days after the governor of Sinaloa State announced that federal police would be taking over security duties in the city. Sinaloa is a stronghold of the Sinaloa cartel, one of at least three major organized crime rings jockeying for power in Mexico. 21 people were killed in Choix in May during violent clashes between the army and several drug gangs operating in the city. City police are advising residents to observe an evening curfew in order to avoid being hit by stray bullets. The U.S. Justice Department is offering a million-dollar reward for information about five Mexican men involved in the 2010 killing of a U.S. Border Patrol agent. Agent Brian Terry's death is at the center of a congressional investigation into the department's botched sting operation of cross-border gun smuggling, known as Operation Fast and Furious. The department announced the reward after an indictment charging the five men with the killing of the border agent was unsealed in Tucson, Arizona this week. Two guns used by the criminals and linked to the Fast and Furious operation were found at the scene of Agent Terry's death. The House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform has declared U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder in contempt of Congress over a dispute about releasing documents related to the operation. Violence against female activists campaigning to end controversial mining operations in Guatemala is on the rise. Several men attempted to lynch Lolita Chavez, a leader of the Quiche People's Council, an indigenous Maya group, last week. Chavez was attacked after a peaceful protest against mining projects that are damaging the environment in the Guatemalan highlands. The armed men injured Chavez and several other female protesters. Another member of the Quiche People's Council, Jose Tavico Zunun, was murdered in his home in June. Guatemalan women who protested the mines have been threatened and even shot in the face by assailants in recent years. Human rights lawyers who support indigenous and environmental rights have also experienced recent attacks. The Guatemalan government is stalling efforts to introduce mining reforms in the country. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. Earlier this year, this program traveled to San Francisco, where we met up with Dr. Jorge Dominguez of Harvard University. He's the co-editor and co-author 
of a new book called Cuban Economic and Social Development. Here are excerpts from our wide-ranging, on-location interview about Cuban politics and policies. A chapter by Omar Berlani Perez talks about how Cuba's economic growth rate boomed in the middle of the last decade. And it did so thanks to the relationship between the government of Cuba and the government of President Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But it also shows how, because of the difficulties in Venezuela, the <clears throat> Cuban economic performance has markedly deteriorated over the past half dozen years. So it illustrates both an element of background and an element of challenge. When Cuba is too dependent on a single country, on a single political leader, outside of its national boundaries, it loses some control of the shape of its circumstances, but it also has difficulty designing economic policies that would advance its objectives. Would you say that that's the Soviet mistake redone in Venezuelan form? It really was the Soviet mistake done again. One of the impressive elements about President Raul Castro's government, people who are listening to us may disagree with President Raul Castro on any number of issues. Let me indicate one that I think matters a lot. It is making decisions on the basis of evidence, not just on the basis of ideology, not just on the basis of personal preference, on the basis of evidence. And one of them is Cuba cannot depend on Venezuela forever. Hugo Chavez is not in good health. And therefore, part of the, what is discussed in the book is what kinds of policy changes should Cuba undertake some already underway, of those which should be uh, speeding up. Within the last calendar of the year, we've seen great changes, changes in the fact that you can bring agriculture to market in Cuba, that you can sell real estate, that you can sell cars, things that we haven't been able to talk about for decades in Cuba. So this is the beginning of that economic challenge that you Quite talk right. about. But you also talk about economic issues that, that are big challenges for the Cuban leadership. Can you highlight some of those for us? So let me give you a couple of examples from the good list that you just mentioned. So suppose I'm, I'm working agriculture, and under the new reforms, I now have the right to use land that I do not own, but use, but belongs still formally to a state enterprise, but now I can work it. It had been idle. The state enterprise had not been doing anything with this land. But in order to do that, I need to buy a tractor. But I'm a poor peasant. I'm just beginning to work on this land to which I now have the right to use. I don't have anything I can give us collateral to a bank. How do I borrow the money to buy a tractor? This is, in a practical way, how to think about a small loans for farmers. How should a bank officer assess the credit worthiness of someone who simply has his willingness to work hard and now the right to use this land. Or, I want to buy a house, so I'm going to go to the bank and I need a mortgage. Well, Cuba doesn't have mortgage financing. How are you going to do this? So, these are not impossible policy changes, but they're ones, they're policies Cuba has not adopted in the past, and the new opportunities require that it continue to change. In your opinion, is the Raul Castro government flexible enough to meet those challenges? I think the Raul Castro government is pragmatic. It is willing to listen, even to the kinds of arguments that I am summarizing from 
by colleagues who are the economists in the book. Uh, and it has already begun to adopt some of these policies in response to that applied research, namely research applied to Cuba's circumstances. Is it flexible to create a banking system to do mortgage financing? I don't know. You and I could have this conversation a year from now and see whether it did so. The suggestions that you put forward in the preface is that Cuba should pay a, a lot of attention to its communist ideology um, neighbors in China, in Vietnam. And so um, in following those ideological neighbors, is it possible for them to, to do this sort of banking change that you suggest? So I think that the Cuban government would want to look at policies, say, that the government of China has adopted and understand, uh, as any Chinese government official or social scientist would tell them, that they have to do much more, including along the lines that I've just mentioned to you. But actually, I think it would be unfortunate if the Cuban government simply copied what the government of China has done. Example, Cuba has today much better health care policies than China has for the rural areas. Cuba actually provides health care coverage for its people. If you are living in rural China, your chances to have minimally accepted health insurance are not good. So this is not about just copying everything that the Chinese have done. This is about understanding intelligently and selectively what are the sorts of things that Cuba should undertake and what are those that it should avoid. One of the most intriguing lines that you put in your conclusion to your preface is generational leadership replacement will occur in due course. That alludes to the end of the Castro brothers' time in running Cuba. Who should we be looking at now in the leadership that's coming up that would be worthwhile as saying those are the ideas of the future in Cuba? So, uh, to remind our leaders, Fidel was born in 1926, Raul was born in 1931. Uh, I wish them well, but there are biological limits. So, th there is a change coming. One of the puzzles to me is that uh, Raul Castro, who now is Cuba's uh, political leader, both in the party and in the government, did not take the opportunity of his becoming president of Cuba or prime minister of the government or Secretary General of the Communist Party to enact a generational transition now, to identify a significant number of younger leaders to do this. So if you compare the political bureau, which is the ruling uh, executive committee, the political bureau of the Communist Party chosen at the Party Congress last year under Raul Castro's leadership, with the last one under Fidel's in 1997, uh, the average age, the median age of the political bureau went up from being in the mid-50s to being uh, 70. That's not the way to go. If you're trying to plan for leadership in the future, even if you're looking at it from the perspective of the current leadership, namely the continuation of the political regime they have created. Those who oppose them would, of course, like this political regime to change dramatically. But even if you're looking at through Raul Castro's own eyes, you would think he would understand that he is um, 81 years old and that he needs to create the possibility of an orderly succession. That he has not done so is to me the most surprising political puzzle 
about a new leader in Cuba who in many ways is very pragmatic, very willing to take chances. But this chance, perhaps the most important that he needs to take, he has refused to uh, follow through. Are you telling me that there's a disorderly succession about to happen in Cuba in the next five years? I actually don't think there's a disorderly succession uh, uh, in the works, um, but the, inc the likelihood of a disorderly succession increases if the current leadership remains uh, as elderly and as unwilling to welcome youngsters who might be 55 years old uh, into the political bureau and the Council of State. That they have not done. Uh, if you have, remember, <laughs> Raul Castro's first vice president, uh, uh, first uh, deputy in every hierarchy of the Cuban government and party is actually older than he is. This is not the way to plan for the future. So do you see some talent coming up that you think may eventually rise to the top? There are people who are now undertaking uh, significant and important work. Most of them are or have been uh, the first secretary of the Communist Party in Cuba's various provinces. The reason these are key people is they're the ones much closer to the ground. Uh, Cuba's provinces are really quite small. Uh, you have real understanding of the ordinary lives of human beings. First party secretaries moreover have what might be called an interdisciplinary perspective. They're not just doing economics. They're not just doing health care. By the nature of the job, they have to pay attention to a lot of things. I would look to them as a way to imagine what a collective leadership or a new uh, single leader might look like in the future. You talk in the book about inequities mm -hmm. in the provinces compared right. to the city centers and, and, and elsewhere. This is a real change in Cuba, too, this, this growing inequity. How do you see them answering that question? So Cuba was a remarkably egalitarian society uh, through the 1980s. Uh, it is now much more unequal than it was then, as it has opened up to limited forms of market activity, some lawful, authorized by the Cuban government in the last year and a half or so, some still in illegal markets. But one consequence of this is inequality has widened. Inequality has widened much more in China. That is another thing that Cuba need not attempt to copy from China. But it is a challenge, and it's particularly a challenge if one takes into account not just income differences between individuals, but also between individuals as they live in different parts of the national territory. As you move out of the capital city of Havana and move east uh, uh, in Cuba. Issues of poverty become more severe. Issues of lack of resources, lack of access become much more severe. Transportation problems are much more worrisome. Uh, and inequality begins to dovetail, not just as simple income differences, but uh, differences that include uh, race. Uh, the darker your skin, the fewer the resources that you have to make sure that you and your children may have a, the kind of life that uh, a human being should aspire. Cuba had done a good job on reducing the differences by race between its citizens. 
through the 1980s. In many respects, the results had been stunning in how good, how effective they have been. And they have been falling back. There now are differences that have reappeared uh, that are marked by racial categories. Uh, and this is among the concerns that any Cuban leader in the future, no matter what that person's name may be, will have to pay attention. Also because the Afro-Cuban population is much larger than it was 50 years ago. Cuba's Afro-Cuban population has grown demographically for two somewhat different reasons. One is that the emigration out of Cuba, uh, the million-plus uh, Cubans who have emigrated, have been disproportionately white. Therefore, that has one effect. The other one is that the, the Cuban fertility rate, which is very low for all Cubans, uh, is a little bit higher for Afro-Cubans. And so the combination of disproportionately white emigration and disproportionately Afro-Cuban fertility has been shifting the character of the nation's demography. Dr. Jorge Dominguez, our guest today on Latin Pulse, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It really is a great pleasure to be with you. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future. My parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Professor Adrian Pine of American University joins us today. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you so much, Rick. Although at this point, President Fernando Lugo was impeached and removed from office some weeks ago in Paraguay, I would say the world is still a bit shocked by how this happened and how quickly. Some say Lugo was railroaded out of office. Some use stronger terms. What's your view? Um, well, it's clear that what happened was um, was a was a coup in that it did not follow uh, even the legal procedures that were set out by the Paraguayan Constitution in the sense that uh, Lugo was not given his due process rights. That's um, Article 17 of the Paraguayan Constitution. So um, despite all of the talk of, well, it may not have been really democratic, but at least it was legal, it wasn't even legal. Um, but above and beyond that, I think the question is, you know, what's happening to democracy here? And, you know, and what does this say for Latin America more broadly? Um, it's also clear, in addition to the fact that this was a coup, that, that this was modeled after the Honduran coup in 2009, um, which ousted President Manuel Zelaya, also using a very similar excuse of, you know, of, of kind of breaking with the Constitution and looking at legality um, as a framework for carrying out what was a coup. Um, so, uh, you know, what happened in Paraguay is that, you know, you had a, a president who had promised to do great things. He didn't actually really manage to do many of those great things um, for for the people, for the uh, landless peasants and the poor majority of Paraguay. Um, he had been elected as, you know, the president of the poor, um, and, and yet he didn't, didn't come through. Uh, however, he had um, pushed back 
back just enough uh, against the ruling class, um, and in particular against the the Congress and Senate of Paraguay, who are almost exclusively landholding elites, rural landholding elites, and um, and which, by the way, um, can get into uh, the Congress by actually literally buying their way in. There's a closed party um, list electoral system that they have in Paraguay, which allows wealthy elites to buy their way into Congress. So what you had was, you know, a Congress that was, um, you know, really opposed to the things that Lugo stood for, but hadn't really carried out. But he had pushed back, as I mentioned, by uh, threatening to veto and then vetoing a um, $35 $35 million giveaway that Congress and Senate had proposed um, that that was uh, to the National Electoral Tribunal, which was basically a way to get money to the punteros who were the, um, you know, political party operat- operatives for their parties in, um, in, in light of the coming election so that the parties would each distribute that, that money. And, uh, and there had been a real resistance um, to that within Paraguay from social movements in Paraguay from people calling themselves the indignados. And, uh, and Lugo, in the end, had vetoed that giveaway, that $35 million giveaway to those parties. And, you know, that was kind of the, the thing, maybe the straw that broke the camel's back for them in wanting to ensure that um, there weren't any real threats to the kinds of consolidation of land and power that, that they represent, that Congress and Senate represents. What, where is the U.S. In, in this particular constitutional crisis in Paraguay? Well, I think, um, you know, Brazil is the bigger power involved with regard to Paraguay uh, right now, um, you know, because of its geographic location, but also um, the U.S. uh, having really... um, played such a detrimental role in in the democracy of Honduras following the coup, um, despite what the U.S. you know government, what State Department has been telling us for you know since since the installation of Porfirio Lobo, the current president of Honduras, that now there's unity and reconciliation in Honduras, and now there's democracy. Um, Latin Americans aren't fooled, and you know that everybody knows that a coup took place and a coup stood, and the government today is. A continuation of the coup, and people blame the United States for that. Um, you have the Rio Tinto um, Alcan Company Corporation in Canada, which is a vast mining conglomerate, which had been in talks with the Lugo administration um, to uh, undergo mining in Paraguay. And those talks had stalled because Lugo was demanding that, um, you know, uh, kind of a fair a fair deal. And uh, and now those talks are fast-tracked. And the same thing is going on with um, oil companies in the United States, which are very rapidly investing money. Um, one corporation, uh, the Crescent Oil Company, has invested, is investing $10 million, and this is only following the coup. So if the U.S. State Department is aloof and the OAS has also taken more of an aloof stand on Paraguay, you mentioned the Brazilians, Brazil borders Paraguay. Where are they? Have they exerted any sort of strong pressure other than what's happened at Mercosur? Well, I mean, in the first days following the coup, we saw great indignation coming from um, fr- coming from South American countries, um, and you know, as well as Central American countries, all of Latin America. Um, 
great indignation about this um, this coup, this ouster. But um, I think there have been a number of forces at play that uh, have made this, uh, unfortunately, a battle that that many governments have not seen it to be worth fighting. And one of those is the total monopoly on um, on the media within Paraguay of the same people who are in the Congress and who have not been reporting on the protests by the, the Indignados, which is the movement um, that is largely in the countryside. And it's important to remember that it's cold in Paraguay right now and it's, you know, gray and it's it's not the kind of weather that's conducive to the kind of massive protests that happened in Honduras following the coup there in 2009. And so we haven't been hearing about the dissent within Paraguay and opposition to this coup. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think it's um, without that, I think it's difficult for people to be in solidarity with it. But that, that's not to say it's not happening. Of course, it is happening. It's just not being covered. Thank you. Adrian Pine of American University joining us today on Latin Pulse. And now more on Paraguay as we introduce a new opinion segment highlighting the views of Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem. When they approved the Inter-American Democratic Charter in 2001, Western Hemisphere governments agreed to act together to defend democracy. Recent events in Paraguay, however, suggest that the Charter may now be doing more harm than good. Governments today are interpreting the document almost any way they like, even to justify patently undemocratic acts. The Paraguayan Constitution authorizes the legislature to impeach and remove the president for poor performance, but not without due process. The president was even denied time to prepare a proper defense. It was all done in unseemly haste. But worse still were the actions of other governments in response. Most rushed quickly to judgment. Many exaggerated Paraguay's transgression, calling it a coup d'etat and insisting on some kind of punishment. The president's ouster, although precipitous and disruptive, bore little resemblance to a classic coup. There was no military involvement and no repression. The vice president took over. No one was arrested or expelled. The most shameful response came from Paraguay's neighbors, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay. They straightaway suspended Paraguay from the Mercosur trade group without allowing any defense or appeal. More appalling, they immediately approved Venezuela's entry into the group, which Paraguay had long blocked. Talk about due process. Brazil bears most of the blame. As the region's powerhouse, Brazil is expected to take leadership, help hold immoderate forces in check, and point to solutions. Instead, it was unusually passive. And no other South American government was ready to stand up. Unanimously and summarily, Paraguay was thrown out of the South American regional group. No country on the continent was even willing to join the OAS's subsequent fact-finding mission to Paraguay. Indeed, it was the often disparaged OAS 
that responded most responsibly. After reviewing the Paraguayan episode, the OAS Secretary General produced a balanced professional report that avoided finger-pointing and urged everyone to work toward a peaceful, democratic outcome in Paraguay. The U.S. admirably waited for the OAS report before taking a position. Indeed, I cannot recall Washington ever standing so completely on the sidelines during a political crisis in Latin America. But like Brazil, the U.S. should have been more assertive and at least try to use its influence to discourage other governments from rushing to judgment and taking decisions with longer-term consequences. But maybe nobody would have been listening anyway. If you'd like to react to Peter Hakem's Latin American Perspectives or other parts of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Travel support for this program provided by the School of Communication at American University and the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, also at American University. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, Associate Producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.